You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Redemption. Good to see you all this morning. Um, so we were in our hub group yesterday, and each week, um, Chantal usually comes up with our questions that are discussed in our hub group, but one of the problems with that is uh, I'm usually the one writing the sermon, and so Chantal is trying to guess on like a Tuesday as to what in the world I'm going to preach about on a Sunday, and I'm looking at her like, I don't know. Um, any ideas? <laughs> um, and so she ends up having to come up with these questions. And, and so there are questions for last week. She sent them to me on like Tuesday or Wednesday. And I was like, actually, scrap all of those and here's some questions. And so as we got into those questions in our group yesterday, um, one of the questions was like, what is your deep sorrow? And everyone was like, wow, that's really intense. Like that feels... Um, and yeah, it is really intense. And I'm, I guess I'm kind of in some elements in the an intense person, because my question for us today is very similar to that. It's a question of what is your deepest need? And I'm going to actually suggest an answer for us today. Um, and if you agree with my answer, that's great. If you don't agree with my answer, that's great too. I'm glad you're here either way. But can I just say that I, I think, I'll just give it away at the front so you, you can tune out for the rest of the sermon, but I think that our deepest need is love. Like actual, real, substantive love, not like a flowery, um, sentimental, hallmark card kind of love, but real, robust, when we're going through it, love. So we've talked about this a little bit before, but if you think about babies and just the way they're biologically wired, they are born searching for a gaze. They're born like looking to, to lock eyes with, with a person. They, they immediately can recognize faces. They can immediately recognize glances to, to the point that like uh, children psychologists are warning parents who are millennials and now Gen Z parents like, hey, be careful about how much you're looking at your phone, even around like pre-six-month-old babies because they are internalizing your gaze being on this little screen and not on them. Like this is how much human beings are born into the world intuiting another human's gaze. We are deeply and foundationally creatures of relationship, of love. The neurologist, uh, sorry, the neurological biologist Don, John Medina says that the best thing you can do to raise a smart and healthy child, are you ready? Is to love them. <laughs> right? Oh my gosh, newsflash, write that down, right? Like to pay attention to them, to talk to them, to interact with them, even like before they're 
verbal, to, to have like physical contact with them. This is why like things like skin to skin contact are so important, even for very, very, very young children, to be present with them. Psychologists have also found alternatively, babies who are deprived of physical contact for whatever reason and meaningful touch in the early phases of their development go on to struggle with severe psychological distress. That there's something about that lack of relationship that undermines their personhood, their wiring as a human being. And what developing humans need most is love. Tension, affection, care, presence. Now, I realize that this is probably not a shock to most of us. Like, if we were to really think about this, we're like, oh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. But then functionally, I wonder how we live. I wonder how I live. And I spend so much of my time, like, stiff-arming other people's attempts to love me, and then I also wonder how often I spend stiff-arming God's attempts to love me. Andy Crouch wrote an excellent book on relationships called The Life We're Looking For, and in it he says this, we are designed for love, primed before we were even born to seek others out, wired neurologically to respond with empathy and recognition. We come most alive when we are in relationships of mutual dependence and trust. Love calls out the best in us. It awakens our hearts. It stirs up the depths of our souls. It focuses our minds. It arouses our bodies to action and passion. It also calls out what is most human in us. Of all the creatures on earth, we are by far the most dependent, the most relational, the most social, and the most capable of care. When we love, we are most fully and distinctively ourselves. Isn't that great? And his whole argument in the book is that part of what it means to love is that it, it, we bring our whole selves to it. We bring our minds to it. We bring our souls to it. We bring our bodies to it. But I want to like take a step back and before we start talking about, because like this whole year we've been spending our time talking about like, what does it mean to participate at Jesus' table together? And we've got three goals for this year. The first is to know that Jesus is actually inviting us to his table. The second is to learn like what are our table manners? How do we actually participate in what Jesus is inviting us to participate in at this table? And then third is how do we create space for others? I want to go back to that first one. Because I think if we skip the first one, we can try and jump into the second one and the third one and really not actually understand what we're doing at all. So the first one is this idea that your deepest human need is love. And not in some generic, general, vague sense, your deepest, most foundational human need as a creature is to experience the love of your creator. who is himself, according to our scriptures, a God of love. Now, let's get nerdy for just a second. Y'all are really enthusiastic about that? Okay, cool, yeah. Um, right, so the New Testament says God is love, and we, we see this on, like, signs and, and things like that. But if we were, like, like, peel back the layers, 
One of the things that Christians believe that's super weird and that like might even be a stumbling block for some of us because it is irrational and mysterious and all sorts of things and we can grab coffee and have a, a deeper conversation about it. But it's the idea that, that this God is actually three in one, that there is one God who has eternally existed as three persons. And so when we baptized Jeff a couple of weeks ago, we baptized him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, who is one God in three persons, the Godhead, the triune God, the Trinity. Now, we, we can get into like the details of that. And it's like, well, I don't know. How does that even work? But like, let's, let's for a second stop asking our Western enlightenment questions. Those are good questions. They're important questions. But I want to today take a step back from those questions, not forever, but just put them to the side and, and just for a moment, allow our imaginations to get lost in the mystery of that reality. If that is really what God is like at God's core, then that means that God has eternally existed in a state of love. That the Father has eternally loved the Son, who has eternally loved the Spirit, who has eternally loved the Father, and that the center of God's personhood is love itself. So much so that this God, who is love, who is in eternal relationship with God's self, wanted to express that out into the world, and so he creates this cosmos. He creates this universe. He creates this humanity. And that humanity is created in the image of God for what purpose? To be like him. To bear God's image. And what exactly is that? The God of love. And so that human beings were created as deeply, foundationally, relationally um, creatures. So much so that when God creates Adam, human in Hebrew, um, God creates human, puts him in the garden, and there's this human who's alone in the garden. He's got all the animals and all the creatures, and God looks at human and says, no, 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 there's something off. It's not good for human to be alone. And so he creates a counterpart to human, and it becomes ish and isha, male and female. And he creates then... Uh, communion. He creates relationships. He creates human engaged in relationship with another human. And so God is love, which means that God is eternally in relationship and that God has created us as image bearers, as people to be in eternal relationship. Now watch this. This gets really interesting. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but then all sin is, when we talk about sin, however we describe sin, it is a breakdown of relationality. It is when I violate another person's personhood or when I somehow put a wedge between someone's love for me or my love for them, it is destruction of shalom. It is violation of relationship. So then restoration then looks like what? Restoring love. Becoming people who live in right relationship with one another. This is why the New Testament is filled with all sorts of commands. It's not like, no, no, these are the morally right things to do and the morally wrong things to do. He's like, no, no, let's flesh out what does it mean for us to live as a people of love in a broken world? And he goes on to just Paul or James or John or whoever happens to be the writer in the New Testament goes on to describe ways that we can live in love for one another. The Orthodox theologian uh, Callistos Ware says it this way, love cannot exist in isolation, but instead presupposes the other. So that if God is love, there has to be something that God is loving. And so he goes on to say, the Christian God is not just a unit, but a union, not just unity, but community. 
And this is something that the Orthodox Christians get really well that we in the West have like put on a board and like dissected to try and understand in ways that we've completely lost the mystery and beauty of it. And so I want to return us to this mystery, to this beauty, and to our deepest need, because the deepest need that you and I have as humans who live in a sinful world, who are in of ourselves sinful, is to be reconnected to love itself. And when I, when I say that, what I mean is to be reconnected to God's self, who is love and the source of all love in the world. Not love like in some sort of obscure TikTok subjective way. Like it's just like love, man. It's just like whatever. Like, no, no, no. actually the personhood of God. And so this means that our deepest need is to be connected to love itself, to be returned into communion with our maker, and if, if we were to ask myself, and if you were to ask yourself what we actually spend our time doing, probably very little of it has to do with that. Our life is about our careers or about changing what zip code we're in. It's about building our 401ks or changing our marital status. But no, Jesus tells us, insists on this, that you are a relational creature and that your life is actually really about love, not stuff, not status. And without love, you have nothing but dust. And without love, life becomes cold and empty. And the deepest, truest, purest form of love that you and I need is the love that comes from God. Okay, so you're with me so far. Okay, all right, so enter Jesus. I wanna look at John 15. We're gonna walk through this text a little bit this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and get it out, John chapter 15. If you don't, there's a Bible in front of you. You can pull out your phones, no judgment, even though we did a thing on technology, so shame on you. Just kidding, just kidding. I'm literally using an iPad, okay? So no judgment there at all. But, but before we read this, I, I've had a... Uh, hostile relationship with this text for most of my life. Um, I've heard this text taught in such a way as like, it's a threat. Like, hey, you had better do this or else look what's gonna happen to you. And there's some language in here that sounds really threatening. But for the first time, I finally realized and understood, wait, wait, no, 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 this is not Jesus threatening us. This is Jesus actually promising us. And not like in the way that some of your parents did. Is that a threat? No, that's not a threat, that's a promise. No, no, not like that. But we hear it as like a, you had better do this or else. What Jesus actually means is, here's what I want for you. Will you just do this so you can actually have it? And we completely flip it. And, and when we hear it that way, as a promise that, hey, you want to enter into your deepest need as a human being, if you were to do this, you would experience the depths of love. When we hear it that way, it completely changes the way this text reads. So Jesus is going to use the metaphor of a vine. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Verse 2. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it can bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Right? So he's teaching this to his 12 disciples. He's talking to them about, hey, here's what I need you to do. And he's using this metaphor of fruit and vine. And we get to verse 4. Remain in me, and I in you. 
Just as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, but must remain in the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. And I think there's something about this that maybe I'm telling on myself a little bit when I hear this a certain kind of way. When I hear this as a threat, it might betray some of my own misunderstandings of who God is and what God is like. How might this change if we actually really believed that the clearest expression of God's disposition towards us was Jesus? How might this change if we really understood that the central fact of human history is that God became human, died for humanity, and was resurrected by the Spirit of God? And in this, what we begin to understand is Friends, God is not against you. God is deeply for you. So much so that God has become with you. And how might it change if we were to read this with the deep foundational belief that God is actually really for you and that God is actually really with you? And then Jesus says, remain in me. The one who is for you, remain in me. The one who is with you, Remain in me, and you will become a beautiful, flourishing version of humanity. But if you don't, if you reject me, if you run from me, if you hide from me, if you stiff arm my love, you are isolating yourself and short-circuiting your deepest need. Jesus points to the necessity of being tied to him to bear fruit, to being tied to love itself, to becoming the type of human that can live a flourishing life. And so this is not Jesus uh, with a punitive threat, do this or I'm gonna punish you. It's an ontological promise. Do this so that you will become this. So what is bearing fruit? Because we have to actually do a little bit of homework here. So for some of us, we've been taught bearing fruit is like having quiet times or being super religious. Others of us have been taught, well, it's like fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness. So if you actually go and read John, and when John talks about fruit, John is going to use this language in a really specific way. So we need to understand that when we're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, that's Paul writing in Galatians, which is a different different letter to a different group of people. And he uses the word fruit and then says, this is what I mean by fruit. John uses the word fruit, and it's a metaphor, but what he means by fruit is something a little bit different than what Paul means by fruit. You, you tracking with me here for a second? So when, when we need to understand that when we come to the text and we hear Jesus saying, hey, do this so you will bear fruit, we are importing things that John, the author of this gospel, might not actually be meaning. So then what is it that John himself actually means when he talks about bearing fruit? Well, he tells you in a previous story in John chapter four, when Jesus is with a woman at the well. And the woman's at the well and she hears the words of Jesus and she believes them in her shame, in her like isolation. She hears and believes Jesus and she runs to the community and she tells them, here's the testimony, here's the story, here's what I've discovered about this person who has restored my soul. And the people hear her words and all of a sudden believe. And Jesus looks at all these people who are coming to this well and he looks at the disciples and he says, hey, you're gonna go out in my field and you're gonna work and you're gonna bear fruit. 
And then he points to all the people and he says, look, the harvest is ripe. The fruit is, fruit is ready. Are you ready to reap it? So fruit in uh, John is not good works. It's not behaving yourself. It's not morality. It is giving life to the world. Like wrap your head around that for just a second. Jesus is saying, if you remain in me, you will bring resurrection into the world. You will take dead things and bring them to life. So then Jesus says, hey, if you want to do this, the way that you do it is not by doing it yourself. It's not by working hard. It's not by being really moral. It's not by being super religious. It's by remaining in me because I am the source of life. And if you remain in me, then the source of life will flow through you, branch, and you will bear fruit. This is a very different way of understanding this text. So Douglas Campbell, y'all know I nerd out about Douglas Campbell. Um, He's a theologian, uh, expert on Paul, and he talks about our love and bearing fruit in this way. The love that matters is the love of God and the love that we share with God. It is this love and no other. People can love all manner of things. And such love is not necessarily appropriate and is often downright evil. People can love, like my daughter loves donuts. Loves them. Maybe that's divine love. Maybe it isn't. I don't know. Jury's still out. I know her metabolism doesn't necessarily like uh, enjoy the donuts all the time. Uh, Her parents don't always enjoy the donuts in the aftermath all the time. And so when we're talking about love, we have to be really, really careful in a culture that loves to talk about love. We can love all sorts of things that aren't in and of itself good. I can love racism. That doesn't mean that that is divine love. So we have to be very, very careful in understanding that what is is described here is a love that is rooted in the revelation of God in the person of Jesus. And that what I love about what Douglas Campbell points out here is that this is not just God's love to us, but this is our love back to God. It is this reciprocal sharing that the world somehow will see and be invited into. So bearing fruit is rooted in our experiencing God's love so that we become a conduit into which others around us can experience God's love also. Campbell goes on to point this out. We're calling people to respond to the presence of the divine communion because it is, in and of itself, the most important and special thing in existence. Let me me rephrase that a little bit to make it a little less theological and a little more practical. We are calling people to respond to the fact that God actually really does love them because this is, in and of itself, the most important reality in existence, that God loves you. And not in some, like, metaphorical, hallmark, holiday movie, God bless them, kind of way. Urban person moves to a farm and, okay, But we know God's love because God comes down, becomes human, dies on a crucifix for us. So later on in this chapter, where is it? Later on in this chapter, um, John describes being cut off and gathered and thrown into the fire. 
And so often we hear that. And we, what I've always heard anyways, I'm sorry, I'm projecting on y'all. <laughs> what I've always read in that is, oh my gosh, I better have a quiet time or I'm going to go to hell. I better abide in Jesus. I better remain in Jesus or I'm going to get cut off. First of all, what type of love is that? But second of all, listen really carefully to Jesus's words here. Look at verse six. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away, passive, right? So this is passive language, not active language. He is thrown away like a branch and dries up. And they, and they gather them and burn them in the fire. And I wonder, as I'm reading this, and I'm trying to read this through the lens of Jesus Christ, who was crucified for us, and I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, was, what is he saying here? Was there anyone who they gathered up and burned? Is there anyone that stood in the place of those who were disconnected from God, who was gathered up by the them and was destroyed for it? And, and what I used to read as like, hey, this is a threat that I better watch out, I'm gonna go to hell. Now all of a sudden I'm reading through the lens of the cross and there is one who has gone through hell for me so that I can remain in him. There is one who has experienced isolation, who was burned by them, who was cast off by them so that I can live in communion. And it completely changes the way we read this text. And so Jesus suggests that we will have life as we make our home in him. It's another way of translating this strange language of abiding in him or remaining in him. We can make our home in him. We can center ourselves on him. Our lives, our affections, our allegiances can all be oriented to him. And that this is not Jesus threatening us, you had better do this or else. This is Jesus assuring us and promising us, if you do this, you will find life you will experience love. Everything will suddenly make sense. Everything won't go well, but everything will finally make sense. And so what would it look like for us to take Jesus seriously here? So this is where I'm really tempted to give you like, here are five ways that you could take this seriously. But I wanna like be very careful because one, I don't want you to hear me telling you, hey, if you're not doing these things then you're somehow a terrible person because I don't believe that that's necessarily true. I also don't want you to get so wrapped up in the things that you miss the point of doing the things. With that caveat, I'm going to share some things. <laughs> Jesus says to us here, you're being enfolded into the very heart of God, the triune God of love, and you are now in Jesus, given the opportunity to experience and know and be known by this God. And so my question to you is how can we begin to experience this? How can we begin to experience the divine love of God that Jesus has brought us into? Verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So before we get to these practical things, can I confess a little bit of like, when I read this text this week, this is the reason I chose it instead of some other ones. It was this phrase right here that just cut me to my core. And if you will remain in me, you will be a joyous person. I'm a lot of things, y'all. <laughs> Very rarely am I accused of being joyful. In fact, this week, what was I called? Uh, uh, yeah, I was called the Grinch. <laughs> 
I was called an old curmudgeon, <laughs> cynical, like all of these things. Yes, that fits. But I began to like, like actually take Jesus up on this and like really threw myself into this reality that God actually really loves me even in my curmudgeonness, even in my grinchiness. And can I tell you that I actually really began to experience joy? Now, not in a way because everything worked out and everything was better and everything was fine. Um, and it, not fully, there were some moments. But that what Jesus is telling us is, hey, do you want to enjoy? Do you want to delight? Do you want to experience the beauty of being safe and secure in the loving presence of the divine Father? Then remain in me. Cast your gaze on me. Build your life in me. Make your home in me. And then I can fill you with my joy. Even in the terrible junk, even in the stress, even in the toddlers literally spitting on you. That was my wife that got spit on, not me. We took her chocolate milk right away. She learned her lesson until the next time she does it. But actually really experiencing joy. And so practically, we don't cultivate joy ourselves. This is a promise that God is like going to give this to us. So my question is, what do we do? What is this command that Jesus says, hey, remain in me? What, what is the like takeaway? And this is where like caveat still stands. But here are some suggestions. One, we're doing it right now. And one of the most important, and, and honestly, if I'm being really honest, the weirdest ways you are choosing to spend your Sunday morning sitting here among God's people, hearing God's word, worshiping God, taking communion with God in ways that I'm just like, if, I don't know, like go to brunch or let's go for a walk in the park or there's lots of other ways that we could be spending our time and yet you're choosing to be here. I think that's really important and really valuable. But other ways that we can cultivate an awareness of God's presence, right? We're trying to do this in our hub groups. When we gather during the week, we are coming back to like, hey, what did we talk about in the sermon? Let's remind ourselves and our hearts of some of the things that we wrestled through together. But then really, what we're trying to do is spend that time together in prayer. Spending that time together, focusing on an awareness of God's presence with us in community, because there's like two ditches we can fall into here. One is when we try to cultivate this awareness of God, we can think that the only way to do it is by ourselves alone in isolation from other people. And that's not healthy. You and the Bible with Jesus by yourself forever is not the way that God has designed this. That's why we have the church and that's why we're doing what we're doing right now on a Sunday morning. But the other ditch we can fall into is like, it's just only the people and I don't really actually need a personal interaction with God at all, at any level. And so what we do on a Sunday morning is we collectively experience God so that when we leave this place, we can individually begin to cultivate an experience of God's presence, an awareness of God's presence, fix our gaze on what we're currently fixing our gaze on on a Sunday morning. And the goal is communion. Can I free some of you from like your legalistic quiet times? Are you ready? You can experience the presence of God without learning anything new. Your quiet time does not need to be filled with an inductive Bible study method. It does not need to be filled with commentaries and learning new things or Bible project videos. You do not have to walk away from a quote-unquote quiet time having learned something new about God or about the scriptures. 
In fact, can I even be a little bit more bolder? I think a lot of times that mentality is an hindrance to experiencing God. And we begin to puff ourselves up in knowledge and my relationship with God is based on what I know and what I learned compared to the person next to me. There's someone in the text who that's like, and I'm trying to remember who it was. Was it God that is like all about the knowledge, information, and religiosity, or was it the other guys? I think it was the other guys. Talk about the Pharisees. Yeah, okay, all right. Our piety is not what matter, matters when we do this. This is not about being a good religious person. I'm gonna spend time with God, cultivating an awareness with God, not because this somehow makes me better or more moral or better than my neighbor, this is certainly not self-help. And in most instances, can I free some of y'all with this? You will walk away from it feeling exactly the same as you walked into it. You are not gonna liberate yourself from the anxiety you're feeling, the depression you're going through, the just cynicism that you're dealing with. Like, like, there's a very good chance that none of that changes after you spend time with Jesus. It does not make your day better, necessarily. But what it does is it roots you into the thing that matters most, which is experiencing the love of God. That the God of the universe has insisted that he is for you and that he is with you. And slowing down and becoming aware of that is one of the most important things you can do. Not so that you get some result, but it in and of itself is the thing that is the result. And so we do spiritual practices. We've done a bunch of different sermons on these. You can find a ton of resources on this. I'm not gonna rattle off all the different ways you can do this. But I do want to warn, as you like try and figure out what does this mean for me, what does this maybe look like for me, um, we, we will do part two of this next week where we talk about the reality that all of you are so busy that you don't have any time for this. <laughs> as you begin to like think about what might I do differently with my life to begin to cultivate an awareness of God's presence, an awareness that God is for me, I want you to be careful and remember that the practice is not the point. Well, if I read my Bible, then that's it. Or if I prayed, then that's it. Or if I fasted, then that's it. The practice itself doesn't matter. It is the being in the presence of God that matters. It's not the reading. It's not the talking. It's being with, the God, with God and finding ways to open yourself up to the awareness that God is for you and God is with you. And if you take nothing away from this morning, that's it. How can I cultivate an awareness that God is for me and that God is with me? For some of you, that's scripture reading. For some of you, that's meditation. For some of you, that's just repeating that mantra, God is for me and God is with me over and over and over again. So Dorothy Day says it this way. My strength returns to me with my cup of coffee and my daily reading of the Psalms. Our deepest need is to be rooted in the love for which we were created, to walk with God, to enjoy and delight in God, and to find the fullness of our humanity in losing ourselves in God's love for us. We can cultivate this in a number of different ways. Um, we'll talk about some of those, but know that if you have questions about how to do this, like come talk, shoot me an email, send me a message, a text, 
we'll grab some coffee. There's a million different ways that this can go down. But the point is to remain in him, to know that you are loved by him, to open up your your heart and your soul to an awareness of God's presence, and to realize that God's gaze is upon you. And you can actually really turn your gaze back upon him. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor, or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.